This is The Professor's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring business and legal issues prevalent in today's private equity industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner, Jeff Cockrell, as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Thank you for joining another episode of The Corner Series, where we talk through trends, developments, and granular issues that impact uh, healthcare investing by private equity funds and other investors. I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell, partner at McGuire Woods, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my partner, Holden Brooks, uh, for us to discuss a an, an interesting and significant development uh, as it relates to enforceability of uh, non-compete provisions in uh, employment relationships, and it has impact in the context of deals. But uh, Holden, maybe you introduce yourself and then walk through the kind of the broad scope of what this proposed uh, rulemaking is uh, looking like. Sure. So I am a partner in McGuire Woods Antitrust Group. I have spent the better part of my career doing uh, healthcare antitrust. And when I haven't been doing healthcare antitrust, I've been doing private equity work, advising private equity clients on, on antitrust risk in the M&A context. And Jeff, as you know, this has really set off a bomb in the legal world, right? This FTC proposed rule that came down in early January. Folks on the um, business side who have these non-compete provisions in their employment contracts are really trying to figure out how to approach this. And so are people who are in the PE context who have to think about the value impact of these non-compete clauses in the deals that they're contemplating. And Holden, as a deal person, I know it's one rule and there's some uh, exceptions to it, but I, I think about it in two different contexts especially in the context of investing in healthcare provider services businesses. One is the, the going forward relationship that uh, a business will have with employed physicians. Um, uh, those may be physicians that were a part of a, a business that sold to the private equity platform, or they may be new people coming along. That's one context. The other context is in the setting of the sale of the business, the original sale of the business to the private equity fund where in that context, you're looking at something a little different as a buyer. Uh, in particular, um, a, a lot of the, the value in a, in a business is the go-forward goodwill and efforts of those particular doctors. And if, if they could sell at a significant uh, purchase price and then potentially immediately compete, it, it could really impair the value in the context of a transaction. So, uh, uh, Holden, can you give the, how that rule would apply in those two different contexts? Sure. So at a very, very high level, this is really a rule that is rooted in the Federal Trade Commission's perspective that there really isn't any pro-competitive upside to these non-compete provisions in employment contracts. Whether we're talking about low-wage, you know, franchise sandwich restaurant employees, or we're talking about highly compensated physicians, they just are proceeding from this place where they do not see any pro-competitive upside or justification for these clauses. So, folks who have businesses that have these clauses baked into all of their employment um, contracts, and those folks are going to have to think about potentially, if this proposed rule does become final, and that's a big if, you know, we're expecting legal challenges to both the FTC's rulemaking authority and to the the nature and the, the contours of the proposed rule 
itself. They're going to have to think about how do I pivot and use other tools like non-disclosure agreements, et cetera, in this business where I really rely on these um, clauses in, in, in my contracts. And there's also going to be a requirement to waive these provisions as they exist in contracts. So there's going to be two components of the rule, really, which is that people are going to have to think about living without, and people are going to have to think about how they are going to go about rescinding these non-competes and waiving them in existing contracts. In the deal uh, context specifically, the FTC knows that they need to have a slightly different approach. And what's in the proposed rule right now is that you can put non-compete restrictions into deal documents, essentially, that restrict the sellers after closing from competing with the acquired business where the sellers have an equity interest of 25% or more. And I was on a call the other day with an FTC official where somebody specifically raised the question of where this 25% threshold came from and does it make sense? And specifically, does it make sense in the physician uh, context where you and I know that there are many groups where the uh, selling physicians have less than a 25% interest, but the buyers still have a really you know, sort of mission critical interest in securing some uh, some kind of non-compete there. And the FTC has solicited comments on this rule and specifically on that 25% equity threshold. They know that they need to get it right and they know that they need to hear from stakeholders in specific industries to see how this proposed rule and these restrictions will play out in that industry. So right now, the proposed rule, if it went into effect tomorrow, you could impose a non-compete on selling physicians if they had a 25% equity uh, interest or greater, but you could not impose that uh, non-compete on physicians that were that had a lesser equity interest. And, and to me, uh, looking at this, knowing that there are some very real legal challenges that are going to be brought to whether or not this kind of sweeping rulemaking is within the authority of the FTC and other legal challenges. As I look at the landscape of the of the proposed rule, it, it would seem that you, we're likely to end up in a scenario where there's some extended period of time where there's uncertainty as to where that's going to land, which is unfortunate in the deal context. And and to me, as a as a deal person, I, I added up that on the kind of go forward employment context that dealmakers are going to have to just live with the expectation that there's not going to be those non-competes available. These challenges are going to work themselves out. But at a minimum, the federal government just put out 100 pages of policy rationale for why they are a bad idea uh, and then separating whether or not they are right on that. That uh, 100 pages is now out there. And the enforceability of any non-compete in any context just got harder. And so I think dealmakers need to live with that possibility going forward, which isn't going to be the end of the world. I mean, uh, California has pretty hard prohibition against non-competes. And people navigate around them, uh, rely on rollover. You make it a better place for them to not want to leave. You can still do deals. The harder context is this uh, 
rule on the sale of business, which I, I think the buyer has the better side of the argument in that context uh, from a policy perspective. And to me, the most important thing that comes through this rule uh, process as they kind of absorb comments and think about it is that the rule that get that gets published uh, at the end of this process, recognizing there's going to be challenges and all these other things, but the rule that gets published uh, ultimately needs to be a landing spot that deal people can live with. And to me, that 25% uh, notion is just is thinking about it wrong, um, that the better way to think about it would be if a buyer, or I mean, rather, if a seller is receiving material uh, consideration in the deal. And we can talk about what material consideration would really mean. But if they're getting material consideration, then the the safe harbor to allow a non-compete in that sale of business context should apply. And that material consideration would keep you from doing kind of silly things like giving every uh, employee one share or, or stuff like that, but make it real. But if, if, the, if the ultimate rule that is published has something like that, then uh, even if those challenges to the overall rulemaking don't go anywhere, we'd still have a rule that you could still do deals in. So that, to me, is the most important thing as we're watching this process unfold. And, and Holden, uh, what, how would you handicap that process? Uh, or do you think they're going to be responsive to some of these uh, transactional deal concerns, or are they going to be more rigid? I think they are going to be responsive, to be honest with you. I mean, the way I think people should be looking at it now is that, you know, there is an asteroid headed for Earth, right? And as we go through the comment period, as the FTC takes into account comments from various sectors and industry groups, et cetera, I think we're going to see some of these more brazen components of the rule sort of fall away, right? And the FTC has already acknowledged, they've put out some alternatives that they want comments on. So they've already acknowledged that they need the input of people who are really doing business in this country to come up with the right contours for this rule. So I think that the smart play right now is to monitor the comments. I will say that in the physician practice, there's at least one or two really, I think, thoughtful comments that have been put out there that talk about why this rule would be really destructive in the physician um, practice sale context, that the ability to sell a practice with a non-compete that will make your practice attractive to a buyer is really critical for maintaining the stability of community-based practices as an alternative to hospital-based care and acquisition of physician practices by health systems, for instance. So I think there's some really thoughtful arguments that will be made. I think you will see a more nuanced, considered rule at the end of the day. At the same time, I do think that, you know, the main purpose of the rule was to get people to be more thoughtful about these non-competes, to, to really think about whether they need these restrictions how to narrowly tailor them so that they are hewed more closely to the business justification that they're designed to correspond to or the interests that they're going to protect. So I think that watching how the process is unfolding and thinking about how you can be smart about making these provisions that you're putting in in the meantime more defensible is really the way to go. 
And some of the uh, comments that have come in have, uh, as you noted, have been interesting. There's thousands and thousands of them, and a lot of them are just individuals venting uh, on the application of uh, a non-compete in a particular setting. And setting aside uh, some of that anecdotal uh, comments, there have been some that have challenged kind of the idea that non-competes are definitionally kind of anti-competitive. More interesting ones has been uh, offering the idea that uh, physician group consolidation is necessary to balance some of the negotiating powers that uh, physicians have with payers. Uh, there's a lot of discussion around uh, kind of the the power of larger physician practices, but probably not enough discussion of the power of large payers. And uh, balancing some of those negotiation uh, dynamics could actually have pro-competitive uh, impact. So there's a, a lot of discussion around the kind of the core philosophical approach um, and w- one other note that where this could go on the employment on the specific employment side is that there's been some discussion that there could be a compensation threshold that would uh, apply differently. Meaning, uh, to your point, if you're if you're making sandwiches, the idea that you couldn't compete with Subway may make less sense than a, a more highly compensated person who's making a more coherent choice of uh, uh, trading their effort for uh, consideration. And there's some possibility that uh, one of the carve-outs to the application of the of the rule generally could be a compensation uh, uh, level carve-out. Holden, do you think that's a realistic possibility? I know that's a more nuanced idea. I do think that that's a possibility. And that is one of the alternatives that the FTC has sort of thrown out there for comment. If you look at where this rule came from. If you go all the way back to the executive order that President Biden issued in the summer of 2021, he says in that order, like, hey, FTC, DOJ, I really need you to take these non-competes seriously. Come up with a way to, you know, reduce, you know, the abuse of these provisions. And the the enforcement actions and litigation, et cetera, that we see in this area really does look to try and protect the mobility of lower wage workers, right? of, you know, fast food workers who, you know, they, they have no leverage against these larger employers. They need these jobs. They sign these contracts. They don't realize that it means that if somebody else is offering, another fast food place is offering $1.50 more an hour down the street, they would not have that opportunity be available to them because of this contract they signed. That's a totally different scenario than, and I think the FTC would acknowledge this too, That's a different scenario than someone who is highly compensated, very sophisticated, is able to consider the impact of a non-compete who has some leverage with the entity that they are, the employer entity that they are negotiating with at the time, accepting a non-compete in exchange for, you know, um, the position that they are going to, to be in. So I think that that is a space where there can be more more play. I think there will be some nuance there. One thing I do want to kind of caution our listeners about is that, you know, the FTC and the DOJ and state's attorneys general have a history of having a different perspective on the impact of non-competes in the healthcare space. So there is a history going back many years of the FTC and DOJ you know, expressing some support for and sympathy for physicians who are complaining about 
being subject to non-competes because they allege that there is a patient relationship impact. There is a relationship to, you know, healthcare delivery in the, in the community. So I do think that, um, that is one area where I think that we need to be really smart just as a, you know, a sector about the feedback, uh, the feedback that we're giving because the FTC and DOJ, I think, arrive at the question of whether non-competes should apply to physicians or not, or how they should apply with some skepticism about the the need for these these provisions from a business perspective balanced against what they may perceive as some you know care delivery consequences a- absolutely and those are all fair considerations uh, and I just think folks need to recognize that in the in the deal context we we do deals in and California is a good example we do deals in California all the time uh, and a, a well-run uh, physician-related uh, business can still thrive. It puts more pressure on uh, making it a workable economic relationship on a go-forward basis such, such that you're not leaning so heavily on the impact of these uh, non-compete provisions and you're leaning more into making this a place where uh, physicians want to uh, uh, stay and work and can thrive, and the economics are set up in a way where you don't uh, you don't need the power of a non-compete to make somebody want to stay. Um, so I, I think that the idea of provider services transactions going forward can completely thrive regardless of how this rule lands, as long as they, they land on a decent outcome for the sale of business, because the specter of uh, buying, let's say, a, a five-physician practice, so it's each under 25%, and the idea that they could walk out the door right after you wrote them a pretty significant check uh, is a bit intimidating. So I, th- I think as long as that lands cleanly, uh, the, the the business of doing deals in healthcare provider services will continue. Um, it, it's also worth noting that there's lots of discussion around whether or not uh, doing this sort of thing through rulemaking is a good idea. Whether or not they have the authority to do it is one question. Whether or not it's a good idea is another. The specter of uh, national uh, policy on some of these topics swinging based on presidential elections and a new administration. All of that stuff is a bit of a clumsy way to go about uh, making national policy. Uh, have you seen much discussion on some of those macro uh, critiques, Holden? Oh, 100%. And I have, you know, recently been in a room with folks from the FTC who are, you know, or listened to their remarks that make it clear that, you know, they feel that they have a mandate and that the way that they fulfill their mandate is through rulemaking. And they have set themselves up in the past couple of years. It's sort of no secret that they were. this is how they were going to go about this kind of thing to make it easier for them to promulgate rules. And so it's not a surprise that they are sort of going for it. And this is a, this is a real change. It is a, you know, a very new and radically different approach to um, how to fulfill this competition protection mandate. So I think that there's a lot of discussion about how those legal challenges will will play out. But this is an FTC that really believes very strongly in what they're doing. They really believe very strongly that they have an obligation to exercise their power in sort of a what I'll just call a maximalist way. I don't know if that's the best word, but that they have that they are charged with this and that they 
have a, a real responsibility to pursue this. So, you know, I think it's uh, this is sort of the best part of democracy in a way. You know, we have an opportunity to speak up, to deliver thoughtful comments to this body and to also have our courts consider whether this is the way that, um, you know, things should play out, whether this is the right way to um, to make policy, because, you know, even the FTC acknowledges that this is going to have a massive impact on our economy, billions of dollars, millions of people. And, you know, it would be something that would be fairly cataclysmic in terms of the way that we do business. It would be a real shakeup. And the Supreme Court has uh, weighed in uh, fairly recently on whether or not uh, these sorts of major decisions should should occur through sweeping regulation. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as well. But uh, Holden, uh, thank you for joining the, this episode. Uh, I might bring you back uh, as some of these developments uh, unfold. It'll be interesting to watch and see how it lands. Um, I think deal making is going to proceed and it's going to be okay, but this will be uh, a bit of a bouncy ride on this topic for a little bit. But uh, Holden, thanks again for joining uh, this episode. It's always great to have you. Happy to be here, Jeff. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Professor's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state, and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.